0: Welcome to Worship in the Word with Generations Church of Granbury. You are invited to stay tuned for the next 59 minutes to enjoy some inspiring music from one of Hood County's wonderful congregations as well as an encouraging message from the Bible. The songs you're about to enjoy are from the Generations Church worship team led by Pastor Shake Anderson with the Gen Praise Band and on special occasions, some great guest musicians. the book of Job yet. It's really easy. Just open to the middle of your Bible. That's Psalms and turn left, Job. Job chapter 1 opens with the story of this man to whom the book is named after. It's believed this book is one of the oldest books in the Bible, maybe the oldest book in the Bible because of the ancient Hebrew in which it is written. Verse 1, it says, There is a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Can we say the greatest? Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And so begins the book of Job. The story continues where he loses everything, including his ten children, his health, all of his livestock, his possessions, the respect of his wife and his friends. To make matters worse, only three of his friends come to see him. And when they see him, they don't recognize him. He is in such bad shape, covered with boils from head to foot. They tear their clothes and weep. After staring at him silently for a week, they finally begin to speak. And try to make sense of all of Job's pain by looking for a cause. They begin to accuse him of problems that he must have that nobody knows about. Trying to find some reason to accuse him and blame him for his troubles. In an effort to put a lot of guilt on the poor guy, resulting in the increasing of his pain, the pain of betrayal, slander, and cruel religion. Now, in the first part of the story, Satan gets permission from God to take his stuff and then later to attack his health. And that's as far as he could go. So I somehow believe that he's in the background inspiring these guys to attack him like they were. In fact, the first one, he says, an evil spirit visited me at night, made my hair stand up, made me afraid, and this is what he told me. And then he lays some big line on Job about how angels don't get much respect in heaven and why should man expect God to let them off when they've done evil. I mean, that sounds pretty demonic, doesn't it? Modern preachers today sometimes indirectly agree with Job's cruel friends by saying that he must have opened the door to his troubles because of his fear. As stated in one of his outcries, lamenting in his pain, chapter 325, he says, the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. And they say, see, he opened the door to the devil. The Bible does not say that. To try to say that Job had a reason for blame is to say God was wrong because God called him blameless. When we don't know the reason, let's not put one in there. Just because it tilts our theology, let's not make God bow down to our theology. Amen? Where the Bible's silent, we don't need to be talking sometimes. The Bible does not say anything anywhere in this book, nor anywhere else. This story is referred to in the scriptures that Job opened the door to the devil because of fear. According to what we read in chapter 1, God said this man was blameless. So to try to find a reason to blame him would be in conflict with the God of the Bible. And this book says, let God be true and every man a liar. While worry and fear are not good for any of us, for us to take and apply a suffering person's agonizing pain expressed through his words, spoken while in the depths of unimaginable despair as a reason for all his problems, is cruel and shallow. With only three friends showing up to comfort him, Job has to listen to their hurtful words, spoken with all the convincing arguments they can muster against with their opinions as to why he is suffering so much. Now, we've been racing through this book. This is my third time to tackle it. There's a lot in here of really tough stuff. Anytime somebody quotes a verse to you out of Job, you better look it up and be sure it's God. Somebody was trying to say we shouldn't believe for healing because the Bible says, skin for skin, what will a man give for his skin? Well, that came out of Job. If you go and look at it, Satan said it. Just because somebody says an address of a verse... You better go look at it. We're to study to show our self-approve, a workman that needs not be ashamed, especially so with the book of Job. Their reasonings range all the way from what an evil spirit said to one of them to how he must surely be guilty of some kind of wickedness to cause God to let him hurt so bad. Job struggles with words, and his words go all over the place from lamenting the day he was born to how innocent he was and even to how there are plenty of wicked people in the world that don't seem to suffer. In the middle of all this painful discussion, Job gets a revelation to hold on to that can help him have some hope. Chapter 19, verse 23, he says, Oh, I wish that these words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Good news, Job, they were. Verse 24 of Job 19 says that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pin and lead forever. Yes, they were forever, O Lord, your word is established. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. That's hope, isn't it? God gives him this great revelation. Did his three friends back off and agree with these hopeful words? No. The very next chapter, they continue letting Job have it with their hurtful preaching. In fact, Zophar, the first to respond after this wonderful revelation of the Redeemer who lives, says, the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. Does Job hold on to this hope? No. They get him into defending himself, which gets him away from the issue. You know, we have a right to remain silent, don't we? Finally, being tired of all his suffering and arguing with these three tormenting comforters, Job cuts one of the accusers short and delivers his last speech, a long one, concluding with 40 verses on how righteous he is. He goes a bit far, how righteous his heart is, his words are, his deeds are, as well as stating the numerous punishments that were worse than what he was experiencing that should be his if he weren't righteous. Unlike his very first response to calamity when he said the Lord gives, the Lord takes, blessed be the name of the Lord, Job errs in this final discourse by failing to honor God during this last lengthy speech about his own personal righteousness. When Job finally ended these self-justifying words in chapter 31, chapter 32 says, so these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, I can imagine these smug characters thinking, see, there it is, there's pride. But let's cut the guy some slack here. They had pushed him beyond belief with accusation, innuendo, insinuation of some kind of wickedness. If he made a mistake, he should have just let them rant and rave and not respond. Jesus, wisest man that ever lived, was silent before his accusers. Because when people are out to get you, I don't care what you say. You may have the most beautiful argument in the world. It's not going to satisfy them. They're going to put a spin on everything you say and get you to saying things you would regret. And so that's basically, I think, what happened. When the trio of self-called comforters finally silenced by Job's self-righteous discord, a fourth party jumps up and decides to give his two cents. Verse 2 of chapter 32 says, The wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Rather than just saying, hey, you need to give God some praise, he goes on. Because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. And when he saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. Now, when reading this part of the story, the reader may think, all right, at last, here comes someone with some helpful answers. But hold on, Job is in for a long and braggadocious introduction first. Chapter 32, verse 6, Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak. A multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore I say, listen to me, I also would declare my opinion. Great men are not always wise, right? But young men are not always wise either. The New Testament tells us not to be wise in our own opinion. This guy was wise in his own opinion. Okay, Elihu, what is it? Give us your wise opinion. Well, he's not done with his introduction. Verse 17, I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion. Of course you said it already, for I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wine skins. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Do, Elihu, relieve yourself of this wise opinion. Chapter 33, verse 1. Please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. All right, you've already said your introduction. Let's move on. But no, he continues. Now I open my mouth. My tongue speaks in my mouth. Of course you're talking, you moron. My words come from my upright heart. My lips utter pure knowledge. The Spirit of God has made me. Now he's going to play the God told me card. And the breath of the Almighty gives me life. If you can answer me, set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Verse 6, truly I am your spokesman before God. This guy turns out to be the worst one of all because he mixes true things about God with lies about Job. While Job is waiting here on these announced opinions, Elihu stoops to deal the God told me so card. After an unnecessarily long introduction, he begins to dress down this poor suffering man who's lost all his children, lost the respect of his wife, lost his health, sitting there in pain and agony, having him put up with hours and hours of accusation from three guys. Here's this young wise guy who's going to really let him have it. Verse eight of Job 33, surely you have spoken in my hearing and I've heard the sound of your words saying, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent and there is no iniquity in me. Yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Look in this, you are not righteous. I will answer you for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? Now he put a spin on what Job was saying. Job never said he was more righteous than God. He was saying, guys, I don't have any sin. I'm righteous. If I'm not, I should suffer. I don't know what's going on. So he takes that personal defense and says, you're putting God down. Job didn't. For he does not give an accounting of any of his words For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. That's true. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds. Sure, God speaks to us at any hour of the day at different times. Then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. Thank God that he protects us, all right? Here's the doozy. Verse 19 of Job 33. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones. Which, if you've ever had a boil, who's had a boil? Did it hurt? What if I just did this to it? Would that hurt? Ah! Imagine being covered with them. So now he's mocking his pain, saying... God's trying to teach you something. Perhaps worse than the others, he moves on to the old God must be trying to tell you something doctrine. Then he takes off preaching about God's greatness, man's sinfulness, and how wrong Job must be. What is man? Chapter 34, verse 7, is like Job. What man is like Job? Who drinks scorn like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity, and walks with wicked men. He just throws them In the same boat with all the vile people of the world. For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness, and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. Basically, he's saying, Job, if you're innocent, and you say you're innocent, then you're saying God is not innocent. Job wasn't saying that. I read the book. I don't see that there. But this guy's putting, he's a spin doctor. He's putting a spin on what he's saying. You know, during these political conventions, at the end, the guys that come and make their comments, they're spin doctors. They put a spin on things that were said. For he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way, which is true. God blesses obedience, and he does not bless disobedience. But I'm telling you, none of us get what we deserve. God is merciful. And every problem that you have is not necessarily because you have sinned. Verse 12, surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Putting a spin on Job's defenses, this young genius accuses him of berating God, which is not how I understand the poor man's struggling words. Never trying to empathize with a suffering person's pain and painful thoughts, Elihu pursues condemning him, whom God had said was blameless. Verse 35, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. What a smart aleck. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost, because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Are we reading the same book? Job's just trying to understand, and now he's being accused of sinning while he's trying to defend himself chapter 35, verse 1. Moreover, Elihu answered and said, Do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, What advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds, they are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? This painful rhetoric seems out of place on this side of the story, our side. But at this time, Elihu was on a roll and continues to glorify God while blasting his friend. Wisely staying silent, Job lets him go on because whatever he says will no doubt be used against him. Elihu's sin is trying to bless God and curse his neighbor. The book of James says you can't do it. Salt water and fresh water won't flow out of the same fountain. Let me ask you a question. What do you get when you mix salt water with fresh water? Salt water. When we come and sing, hallelujah, and then we accuse one another, God views all of our conversation, our life is the love song. He views it all. And maybe you've got the greatest voice in town, but if you're letting somebody have it in the neck on Monday morning, it contaminates your praise. This is what Elihu was doing. So the great things he says about God are kind of empty. Chapter 35, verse 8, he says, your wickedness affects a man such as you. Man, I just see the accuser of the brethren pulling strings in the background, don't you? Chapter 36, verse 1, Elihu proceeded and said, bear with me a little. What? We've been bearing with him a little for several chapters already, and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Wow. Pretty prideful dude. Now the young bully includes a little more bragging on his own intellect while continuing to beat this friend up in the name of preaching the truth. Verse 5. Behold, God is mighty but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings. He has seated them forever and they are exalted. Sounds great, right? But hold on to your seat. What What he says next is breathtaking. Verse 11. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity. And their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. Uh oh. He's basically saying if you do what's right, you're not going to have any problems. That's not Christianity, folks. There are times when we need miracles. Maybe from stuff we've caused, but not always. Sometimes from stuff other people cause. Sometimes it's stuff the weather causes. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. In the world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. Embroider that on your pillow and sleep on it at night. It's the Bible. Verse 13. But the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the perverted persons. Now he's insinuating Job's a pervert. He delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. Indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint. And what is set on your table would be full of richness. But you are filled with the judgment Do the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. God is punishing you. This guy's worse than the other three put together. Because he's using God on him. God's going to get you. We want to raise our children to respect God. To honor God. To have a healthy fear of God. But don't you ever, when you punish your kids, use God on them. Jesus is mad at you. Jesus wants you to go to hell. I mean, don't do that. Keep in the mind, all this is in the context of declaring amazing things about God and his awesome majesty. Basically, with many words, I think Elihu is saying, God is righteous and great, but you're not. In fact, Job, you're not righteous. And you would be delivered already by our great God if you would just repent. The younger Elihu finally ends his self-righteous rant with these words, 37, 23. As for the Almighty, we cannot find Him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. He does not oppress. Therefore, men fear Him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise in heart. Basically telling Job he's a dummy. By putting ourselves in Job's shoes, we can easily feel that this has been nothing but religious cruelty. By mixing wonderful declarations of the glorious glories of God with condemning accusations, innuendos, and insinuations, Elihu who has been a perfect tool for the accuser of the brethren. But then God Almighty shows up and begins to speak for himself. Ignoring those who have sinned against Job, God reveals himself to this man who has been in the fight of his life with loss, pain, disillusionment, fear, betrayal, Doubt, unbelief, and slander from close friends. And now this young smart aleck. An answer to his cry. When Job, in the middle of one of his laments, in chapter 31, 35, he said, Oh, that the Almighty would answer me. He does in chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. It could be paraphrased and not do damage to the text. Jehovah answered for or on behalf of Job. Then he begins to speak to Job and ignores the friends. At the end of the story, Job has to pray for the friends because they are in big trouble. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then begins, for dozens of verses, some of the most amazing revelations on creation and the majesty of Almighty God. But that's for another time. Last time I spoke on Job was how to help the hopeless. This is what we want to do. We want to determine where hope starts. If you're going to help hopeless people, you've got to determine that hope starts with you. One of the ways not to help someone is to refer them to somebody else. But a way to help someone is take the responsibility. You see someone needing help, do something. Get your hands dirty. Get a strong grasp of our hope. You can't help hopeless people if you're hopeless yourself. So get in the Word and pray and worship and begin to realize where you need to trust God, where you haven't been trusting God. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you as the promise of Scriptures. Get near to God who is our hope. He's a God of hope and He is our hope and He gives us the hope of salvation. Strengthen order on the home front. You can't help hopeless people if your spouse is hopeless. If your kids are wrestling with hopelessness. Get order on the hope front because it is costly to help somebody who is struggling. So establish order on the hope front. Don't do what a friend of mine did who was having marriage problems and found a homeless woman and brought her home and made her live with him for months. Needless to say, he's divorced today because of foolish decisions like that. The light that shines the farthest shines the brightest, nearest home. So if it's not working at home, don't export it. But don't stop at having a strong home. Well, it's just us four no more. God bless us. And God bless those who cuss us, and then move on and stay self-centered. No, there must be a mission for your family. Realize this is an urgent matter for our nation. Right now, more people are dying in the military from suicide than are dying on the battleground. Every 80 minutes, a veteran is taking his or her life. And the reasons for this is all over the charts bottom line is they're wrestling with hopelessness. We've got to be the answer. The government can't give hope to people. I mean, that's a campaign slogan, but hope comes from people that are in your life. It's not who lives in the White House that's the issue. It's who lives in this house and what you're going to do with it. Amen. If we're going to help the hopeless, we must pray about the mission God has for our family. We are raising up some young, mighty men and women of God. Amen. And they can minister after they leave home, but they shouldn't have to wait. So pray, God, give us an opportunity. What can we do? Because there's such joy in bringing hope to people. Such joy. What can we do together as a family that can help? See interruptions as possible opportunities to help someone. Don't get mad, get glad. All right, here's an opportunity to do something. Look at what Jesus did with interruptions. He used them. Opportunities. When we see or hear of an opportunity to help someone, at least pray. Don't say, I'll pray about it and then you don't. Pray right then. And when you pray for the situation, wait for a few seconds. Give God 10 seconds at least. Lord, do you want me to do something? here? And if he puts something in your mind, step out on it. Be amazed what can happen. The ripple effect could be life-changing in your own life. The person you help could wind up helping you one day. Then without delay, obey the prompting the Lord gives and share your testimony without belittling anyone else's problems. Oh, your kids on drugs? Well, mine almost died. Empathize. Our level of pain is all relative to our experience. And so... Don't ever belittle someone that's wrestling with hopelessness. Point them to our ultimate hope while giving them some hope. We don't want them just looking to us. We're setting ourselves up for failure there. But we want to be a source of hope. But the ultimate source of hope is God. And so whatever we do, always seek to do something that will move them another step closer to the Almighty. Our last two teachings have been on how to be unlike Job's comforters, how to not help the hopeless. And how to be a comforter that Job needed as in how to help the hopeless as we just concluded with. But today I want to look at the issue from another angle by putting ourselves in the place of being hopeless. And knowing how to relate to people who do not understand. This is important because life will often bring us opportunities to face circumstances when all will seem futile. And our acquaintances may not know how to handle it or even remember how to Minister to us effectively. Someone told me last week that all ten things I listed on how not to help the hopeless happened to him during a hopeless season of his life. From well-meaning people. Today is how to handle hope-robbing critics. And this isn't just people in their life. This is the thoughts in your head. This is yourself. Because Job was beating himself up too. Oh, my goodness was wasted. Just, I'm a loser. How do you handle those kind of thoughts? Number one, don't take everything people say to heart. If I had a salt shaker, I'd shake it out right now. Put salt with what people say. They're going to spin what you say, spin what they say. Don't take what they say to heart. Ecclesiastes 7.21 says, Also do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. You don't have to know what people are saying. If someone tells you people are talking, that's probably one other person anyway. So so they're lying. I don't have to know what everything somebody who doesn't care for me is saying about me. I don't have to know that. My ignorance is bliss. Great, I'm going to have some bliss. Do remember when you too have misspoken. Oh, how this one has hit me. The very next verse in Ecclesiastes says, For many times also your own heart has known that you have cursed others. When someone has mistreated me with their mouth, I pray about it, and the Lord will bring to my remembrance where I have done the same thing. And it brings the joy of repentance and freedom from guilt I didn't know I have, and it gives me the grace I need to handle it. So don't take to heart everything people say and remember when you have said some things that shouldn't have been taken seriously. Number three, don't let go of the fact that your Redeemer lives. I mean, in chapter 19, Job could have just stood up and said, that's it, my Redeemer lives, we're done. You guys get out of my house. I'm holding on to this. but No, they. it happened. Thank the Lord it happened and he came through it and the end of the story is amazing. But hold on to the fact your Redeemer lives. Redeemer lives. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with iron lead and pinned forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know. That in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Let me share this. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about our armor. Two of the main pieces of armor that we have as believers is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and the shield of faith, which are those things we believe about God from His Word that keep us strong. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, and the Greek word there for word is the word rhema, which means a specific word. When God gives you a specific word... It is like a sword to use to fight off discouragement and hopelessness. And this word that Job received from God in the midst of his lamenting, the Lord met him at the point of his honesty there in Job chapter 19, revealing to him that his Redeemer lives and that one day he will stand on the earth and in his flesh Job would see him. That was a Rama word to hold on to, to fight against discouragement. Don't let go of your rhema when God gives you a word. It's not a word God necessarily has spoken to somebody else, but it's a word that He has made real to your heart. More than once, a word in my heart that has reigned supreme, that has helped me stand against discouragement, is this. The simple truth, the story's not over. Oh, but the skies are black. Oh, my goodness, defeat is on the way. Yes, may be true, but the story's not over. I'm still here. And that word has carried me through many a storm. The fact your Redeemer lives can carry you through a storm. You may not know how redemption's going to come, but you can know that your Redeemer lives. You may not know how your healing's going to come, but rest assured your healer lives. You may not know how salvation will come in the midst of this situation, but rest assured our Savior lives. Hold on to that Rhema. It will give you the hope that you need. Number four, do look to God continually for him and his answers. He said, oh, that the Almighty would answer me in 3135. If he could have just kept praying that, Lord, answer me, answer me, Lord. Lord, I cry out to you. I know that you're alive. But no, he got his eyes off of the Lord and his solution, because the Lord was his solution. And he's our solution, amen? And got into retaliating and arguing and reasoning and debating with his critics. His slanderers distracted him. So number five, don't retaliate or argue with your critics or slanderers. It's a waste of time. You may have the greatest defense in the world, but trust me, if they're out to get you, if they're out to condemn you, if they're convinced, then everything they hear convinces them of what is true in their eyes. But it may not actually be true. Number six. Exercise your right to remain silent and let God defend you. Jesus is our example. It was prophesied that as a sheep was led before its shearers is silent. So he would be silent before his accusers. Why? Because when people are accusing you, you're not going to satisfy them. They're out to get you. They're out to bring you down, and whatever you say will be used against you. Number seven, don't totally discount misplaced criticism that might be constructive. You know, some people say some things to us that may not be shared at just the right time, and it may hurt. But if it's true, it can help you. Proverbs says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. How sweet it is when the right thing is said at just the right time. But many times in life you did not have that luxury. And so maybe when it is the right time to hear something that you need to hear, remember something somebody said to you that was true that may not have been shared at just the right time so that you have something to correct the direction of your life with. Constructive criticism is not meant to be destructive, it's meant to help. And so consider what people say if it is something that can help you, even though it may not feel good at the time. Don't totally discount criticism that might be constructive. Do keep records of everything spoken to you that might be valuable. You may need it. You may think, oh, I'll never forget this. No, don't trust your memory. We leak. Write it down. We need help from one another. Number nine, don't believe that you're the only one in the world with hardships. Don't ever believe that lie. Remember Elijah thought, I'm the only one. And God says, you're not the only one. I have many who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. That can increase your level of hopelessness, believing that lie. Stick to what is true. Even though it may not feel true, you know it to be true. God's word said is that it is true. Life has proven it true time and time again. And even though you may feel like the only one right now, you are not the only one. So don't be alienated. Do not allow that to get a hold of you and believe that lie because it will increase your level of hopelessness and give your critics an advantage. And finally, think of someone else who needs hope and help them. You mean in the midst of my struggles, help somebody? Yes, you can help somebody in the midst of your struggles. In the midst of his pain, Joe wound up praying for his friends. I guess they needed some prayer. And as he was doing it, God healed him. You know somebody else that's having some problems. Pray for them too. Let's pray right now. Lord, we just pray for those people that we know that are in the midst of struggle and in the midst of great pain. I pray, Almighty God, that you would send help to them, send hope to them, and use us, Lord, to be a source of hope in their lives, even in the midst of our hopeless circumstances. God, we know that nothing is hopeless with you. Lord, use us, even in the midst of our pain, to help ease the pain of others. In Jesus' name, get our eyes off of ourselves upon you and upon the opportunities that are ours, even in the midst of less than ideal circumstances personally. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like for some application time right now, if you know of someone that does not have the hope of salvation, Either they've never known the Lord or they're not walking with the Lord and they're not enjoying the full benefit of the hope of salvation. Would you mind just taking that communication card in your bulletin or a piece of paper and writing their full names down? Maybe more than one person, maybe numerous people. Write their names down and place it in one of the offering boxes at the door before you leave here this morning. And I want to put all those names in a book, a red book. You see it there? My wife has it on the front row. Hold it up, babe. I want to put those names in that book and pray for those people that everyone we know will come to full knowledge of the hope and joy of salvation. Let's stand. As the prayer team comes forward, if you would like to receive prayer as they're coming forward, come forward with them. We would love to pray with you about anything whether it's a hopeless situation or a need for wisdom, a need for salvation in any area of your life, we're here to pray with you. Just put your hand on your heart and let me pray this blessing over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. And may His hope reign supreme in your life. And when you hear unjust criticism. May you walk in the grace that he gives you and hold to the fact that your Redeemer lives. And may you, even in spite of your own situation, find opportunities to bring hope to others.
1: Jesus, awesome and
0: Thank you for tuning in today for Worship and the Word with Generations Church. You may hear our radio broadcast again at the same time and station next week. If you do not have a church congregation to call home and you live near the Granbury area, we would love to invite you to come check us out some Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Our meeting facilities are located at 5718 East Highway 377 on the Fort Worth side of Granbury. And our website is at generationschurch.org.